I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain alive until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, and then to the, all, the, all the apostles, and last of all, as if it were one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles. For I am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me did not prove to be in vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Heavenly Father, we thank you that salvation is a gift, that it is free, and that you call upon men to trust you and believe, but faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he did. And I'm so glad that we get to be reminded every week of that because we don't want to be like the first century Christians that already had people doubting the gospel. Help us this morning to hear new things from it or, or be reminded of the things that we've known so that we would not stray from the truth. Thank you so much. Please uh, be with Tom. Give him the words and let your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. In Jesus' good name, amen. Good morning. Good morning. This is one of those fasten your seatbelts messages. The, the folks upstairs were saying, you really have that many slides? Um, I said last week, bring something to write on. I'm gonna completely rescind that. In fact, I think if you, try to, if you try to write down the stuff that you're gonna see, you'll actually miss the message. You'll miss the point. Much better, just ask Belen for the PowerPoint or email me and I'll send you the PowerPoint after the fact. What, what'll be much more valuable for you this morning is if you just follow, if you, if you track with what's going on here, okay? Uh, tell me the story of Jesus. God has been doing that for a very, very long time. Much longer than, in fact, than some Christians recognize. Uh, I'm going to start this morning by considering what five Jewish men said about Jesus right after they met him. The first four of these incidents are all in John chapter 1, all of them. First is John the Baptist, and he was talking to anyone who would listen, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A little bit later, he said, This is the Son of God. The second in that chapter who made a comment about the person of Jesus is a, man named, a fisherman named Andrew, who happened to be the brother of Simon Peter, good friend of John, the writer of this gospel. Andrew <laughs> was a disciple of John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, when he said, 
behold, the Lamb of God, Andrew said, okay, well, I guess I ought to go check him out. And so Andrew went and talked to Jesus and spent the day with Jesus. And then he was sold. And he went and he grabbed his brother, Simon Peter, and he said, he said, Peter, we have found the Messiah. And then John the Apostle adds a parenthesis, which translated means Christ. The word Messiah, the word Christ, they, they're just two different languages for the same word. And the word means the anointed one. Now, in this case, it's not an anointed one. It's the anointed one of God. It is the Messiah, the Christ that, that Andrew tells his brother they have found. After that, uh, Jesus called another young man named Philip to follow him. And Philip, Philip was on board. And then Philip, after spending a little time with Jesus, <laughs> He too had to go tell somebody, so he ran and he told his friend Nathaniel, he said, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. That's an amazing statement right there. Now, Nathaniel was, he was a hard case. He was not easily convinced. And so Jesus had to do a little work on him. And then Jesus got his attention, convinced him. And then Nathaniel said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The Son of God. The King of Israel. The fifth Jewish man that I'm going to mention here is an elderly man named Simeon who was hanging out at the temple in Jerusalem when the infant Jesus, long before these other events we just described, when the infant Jesus was brought by his parents, Joseph and Mary, to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised and dedicated to God. Simeon had been hanging out there because he was, quote, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then it says that, that the Holy Spirit made known to him that before he died, he was going to get to see, quote, the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ. And sure enough, his waiting paid off. And the day came and he, he beheld this baby. <laughs> and he said, Your salvation which you prepared in the face of all peoples. That's what, he, that's what he said about this baby. To God. He said to God, Your salvation which you have prepared in the face of all peoples. I love that phrase, the face of all people. Some say the presence of all No, it's in your face. Okay? That's what that means. In your face. And where did these five men get this crazy idea that one man would be all of these things? That he would be the Christ, the Lord's Messiah, the Anointed One of God. That He would be the Son of God. That He would be the King of Israel that he would be the consolation of Israel. And, and then, as John the Baptist said, that he would be the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All in one man. And, and guys, all of those reactions to meeting Jesus happened before Jesus' first miracle recorded in John chapter 2. Right? Something had already prepared these Jewish men to expect this person that, was, that, they, that they beheld and said, this is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. Philip tells us that that something is the Old Testament. 
What prepared these men to expect all of those things of one man was the Old Testament. He said to Nathanael, we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So fasten your seatbelts. Last week, uh, my title for the message was The Good News is Clear News. Paul distilled the clear good news down to four essential truths that were marked out by four that clauses. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. And that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to very many people after He was raised. All four of those, beloved, are critical to our Gospel message to the world. The last one often gets dropped. In fact, it's amazing how often, it's amazing how often the resurrection gets dropped. It's amazing how often no one talks about the fact that Jesus was buried, which proves that He died bodily and was raised bodily from the dead. These are all important. Paul says, here's the four that's. Keep this straight. This is the message by which, that, that I preach by which you were saved. This is what you need to bear to the world, okay? So keep these in mind. It's not hard. Died, buried, raised, appeared. Okay? The good news is clear news. It's very simple, very straightforward. Now, twice in those verses, Paul uses this phrase, according to the Scriptures, which simply means just like the Old Testament said. That's what it means. The first instance of according to the Scriptures applies to the death of Christ, and the second instance of according to the Scriptures applies to both the burial and the resurrection of Christ. And he says all of this was according to the Scriptures. And he means the Scriptures that the Jews knew, the Old Testament Scriptures. He's asserting the very same thing that was mentioned this morning by my brother Robert when he read John chapter 5, and the last verse he read was John 5.39, Jesus said to the, to, the, to the Jewish leaders, He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify and bear witness of Me. And then He went on down and He said, if you didn't listen to Moses, you're not going to believe in Me. This morning we're going to focus on that according to the Scriptures part of the Gospel. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul describes his strategy when he would go into a given town or city. He always went to the synagogue first, even though his, his calling, his ministry was essentially to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. That didn't, didn't bypass the Jews. He always went to the synagogues first. And Paul says when he came to the synagogue in Thessalonica, says, verse 2, uh, the, Luke says this about Paul in, the, in uh, the book of Acts. He says, and according to Paul's custom, Paul went to them, to the Jews, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, listen to this, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want you to ponder this for a second. How many of you could explain from the Old Testament, defend from the Old Testament, 
that the one called the Christ had to suffer, die, be buried, and raised from the dead. That that was necessary according to the Old Testament. Well, by the end of this message, you'll be able to do that if, you, if you're paying attention. Or if you ask for the PowerPoint. <laughs> you know, that's important. And I'm a, at the end of the message, you'll, you'll, I'll, I'll uh, explain how important it is, or we'll, we'll have some examples of how important it is. Explaining and giving evidence from the Old Testament that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And of course, in order to rise from the dead, he had to die. Now, you might think, okay, so Paul, that's what Paul talked about in the synagogues. But guys, that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's talking to Gentiles. He keeps saying, according to the Scriptures. Paul, it's amazing how many times in writings to the Gentiles, Paul is pointing back to stuff that's in the Old Testament. It's very important, no matter who we're talking to about Jesus, that we make it clear that God's been talking about the long-promised Christ ever since he started talking to human beings. All right. Paul is saying what the Old Testament prophets proclaimed about the Christ is the same gospel that he now proclaims about Jesus, who is the Christ. It's the exact same gospel. It's the same plan of redemption. Not a different one. It's the same. The only difference is the vantage point from the perspective of time. The Old Testament prophets wrote about the long-promised Christ who had to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead before the cross. The New Testament apostles wrote about the long-promised Christ who had to suffer, be buried, die, and be raised from the dead after the cross. That's when they wrote things down, right? But it's the same event. It's the same person. This is what makes the Bible so extraordinary in the most, in the most expansive meaning of that word extraordinary. Over a span that covers nearly 1,500 years and dozens of generations of mankind, dozens of men all said the same thing about the same person before that person came and did those things. I've said that you've heard me say this before. How many times have you read two historians talking about the same thing after it happened and they don't agree on the details? Here we have dozens of men writing over 1,500 years about a person and what that person would do before it happened, and they're all saying the same thing. See, the Bible is its own greatest apologetic. The Bible cannot be the contrivance of men. And the Bible is unparalleled among all the writings that you will find on this earth in this regard. So what does the Old Testament actually say about the death, burial, and resurrection of the one called the Christ? Well, before we go there, we're going to talk just very briefly about what the Old Testament says about the Christ, who is the one called the Christ, the Messiah. Um, I am not going to look at all these passages. I'm just going to stick them up here, and we're going to, we're going to you know, talk about the kind of the product of what you find in these in these passages. And, and by the way, that in the brackets down there, that is such a tiny fragment that, I mean, we could fill page after page after page with references. These are just some of the highlights. 
Who is the Christ of the Old Testament? Well, the Christ is the promised lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion's whelp that's spoken of in, in Jacob's blessing, patriarchal blessing on Judah. He is the one who will hold the staff, the ruler's staff, and he will rule ultimately over all the peoples, not just over Israel and Judah. Uh, he's the same line of the tribe of Judah, by the way, that's spoken of in Revelation 5.5, 5, New Testament. He is the uh, son of David, 2 Samuel 7, verses 8, 8 through 17, the covenant that God made with David. God told David that he would, raise up, he would raise up a son of David who would also be a son of God, and that, that, that king would rule on the throne of David forever in righteousness and justice. If you know Handel's Messiah, you know that, that Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 picks that, that exact promise up and it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Father of Eternity. Okay? And then it says, there shall be no end to the in increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, from that point forth and forevermore, in justice and righteousness, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. this. This promise pervades the Old Testament, the promise of the Christ, the Messiah. Psalm chapter 2, I'll just let you read that one. It's astonishing, and it uses the word, my Messiah and my son, in reference to this long-promised king. Ezekiel 37 talks about God... It's a promise where God is going to reunite the tribe, the northern and southern tribes, Israel and Judah, and he's going to appoint over them one king, my servant David. Now, this is long after David died. He's talking about the promised king in the line of David from the covenant, right? And it says that God says, I will put my sanctuary in their midst and I will be their God and they will be my people forever. Forever. That's the central promise of the Bible right there. Okay, so the Christ of the Old Testament is all those things, and there are many, many other things that could be said, but this is just highlights. Uh, and if you want more on this, there's an eight-week sermon series that you'll find at communitybible.org sermons called, It is These That Bear Witness of Me. It's taken from John 5.39. The Gospel of Christ in the Old Testament. Okay, the, a lot of these details, a lot of this is fleshed out in that series, but we don't have time for it. This morning, our focus is on what the Old Testament says about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was it in the Old Testament? This is all really amazing, but what was it in the Old Testament that made Simeon expect Christ, the Christ to be the consolation of Israel the salvation which God has prepared in the face of all the peoples. What was it in the Old Testament that made John the Baptist, when he met the Christ, call him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Christ is presented in the Old Testament as the Savior who removes the sin debt that men owe to God. I believe that Christ is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing the serpent after the fall of Adam, and he says, I will put enmity between her seed and your seed, and he will crush you on the head and you will crush him or bruise him on the heel. 
The word bruise or crush is alternately translated strike or attack. I don't think it's an accident or a coincidence that 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 is stated a few chapters from the very beginning of the Bible. And if you go to the very end of the Bible and back up just a few chapters, you find the Lord Jesus Christ coming in glory on a white horse and, and judging the nations and filling the valley of Megiddo with blood up to the bridles of the horses. And then, and then and he takes those who were the followers and the puppets of, of Satan and he throws them in, into the lake of fire and brimstone. And then, he, and then he sends an angel who I believe thinks, I believe it's the cherubim that replaced Satan when Satan bailed out on his job, uh, the cherub. And he, this angel puts Satan into the abyss, temporary holding place. And it says, here's what it says. He takes the one who is called the dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, and Satan, and he puts him in the abyss. And that's on the authority of the, of the returned Christ. So a few chapters from the end of the Bible, you have the serpent of old. You think that's not talking about Genesis 3? You have the serpent of old locked up. And then he's released for a thousand years and he deceives the nations again. And then you have the shortest battle in the history of the world. Fire comes down from heaven. End. Okay. And then what happens? Well, Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. With his, with his puppets. And Jesus does all that. Okay, so that's the, that's the early, it's called the Protoevangelion, it's the early expression of this huge promise that leads to Christ. He is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of Satan, and he is the high priest and king who will remove the sin of God's people and who will be their righteousness. Now that is a mouthful. And there's a lot of verses to support it. We're just going to run through some fairly quickly. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Guys, remember the word branch. Remember the word branch. And he will reign as king and he will act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Yay. In his days... Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And listen, listen. This is the name by which He, this righteous branch, will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Yahweh, our righteousness. Not we're righteous. He is our righteousness. That's not a minor point. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant in the Old Testament... I'm just going to read part of it. Verse 33, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put My law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be My people, and they will not teach, each, uh, teach again each man his neighbor and his brother, so, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. And listen, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. On what basis? This is the God who in Exodus chapter 34 said to Moses, 
the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and, and truth, showing loving kindness to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, comma, but He will by no means leave unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And other passages say the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him, who hate God. Now, what that passage says is God is loving, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, but He doesn't leave sin unpunished. He doesn't leave sin unpunished. So, how is He going to forgive their iniquity and no longer remember their sin? On what basis? Okay? Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 16 goes right back and it says what Jeremiah 23 said. It's almost the exact same words. So I'm not going to read it again, but it talks about the righteous branch of David and who will be called Yahweh our righteousness. Now, we're going to get into Zechariah and this is a lot of fun. If you think Zechariah is this, Jerome said Zechariah is the most unsearchable book in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, but nonsense. Zechariah is all about Jesus. And, and, and if you want the hardcore messianic passages, just look for the threes. Chapter 3, 6, 9, and 12. Okay? 13, 14 have some good stuff too, for sure. But 3, 6, 9, and 12. Chapter 3, God shows Zechariah a vision. And in the vision, he sees Joshua, the high priest. Now, when Zechariah's writing in the time after the, Jude, after the Judahites had been in, in exile to Babylon for 70 years, and then King Cyrus lets them come back, and a group of them come back, and in that group is this high priest named Joshua, which, by the way, is the Old Testament version of the name Jesus. He's not Jesus, but we're going to see that he's pointing to Jesus. And he's the high priest, and it says, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of, of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Before Satan can utter a word of accusation, God says, the angel of the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? He's saying, Satan, I don't even care about your accusation. This one's mine. Now, the high priest represents the people before God. Okay? That's why he talks about Jerusalem and not Joshua when he talks about the brand plucked from the fire. He's talking about the, the people of God in Jerusalem at that point. They belong to him. Satan has no, no, no ground for accusation. Actually, he does. Everything that Satan could have said would have been true. Because these are sinners. But God says, I'm not hearing the accusation. You know why? Because this one's mine. He's a brand plucked from the fire. And then it says, Joshua was clothed with, fil clothed with filthy garments. It's worse than that. It's garments covered with excrement. That's what the word means. It is as unclean as unclean gets to a Jew. And he's standing before this angel and it says, he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, the angel of Yahweh said, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with festal robes. And then the chapter goes on. Angel of Yahweh says, taken off, uh, says uh, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put the clean turban on, clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing by. And then it said, please pay attention here. 
Listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol. The angel of Yahweh is saying to Joshua the high priest, this really isn't about you. What just happened is not about you. This vision is not about Joshua. It's about someone else. Joshua is a symbol who represents something much greater. And then he says, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. Remember that? I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. And then a few verses later, he says, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. You know what marked a decisive victory by God in the Old Testament? It always happened in one day. David slew Goliath and the, the army of the Philistines was routed in one day. Walls of Jericho fell in one day. You see it over and over and over. You see it all the way into, into Revelation 18. One day. Okay. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. Anybody wonder, want to know what day that was? It was, in, it was in A.D. 33, outside of Jerusalem. Okay, that's chapter 3. Let's bump over to chapter 6. God says, Take an offering from the exiles, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Were priests and kings supposed to be the same person in the Old Testament? No. Yeah. The only two examples are this as a vision wasn't real. It was a symbol. We'll see that. And the other is Melchizedek, who is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Um, and it says, take an ornate crown, put it on the head of this high priest, and then say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, this isn't about you. Behold a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of Yahweh. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of Yahweh. It is he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. So he's saying there's a high priest coming. It's not you. There's a high priest coming and he's going to be king. Joshua was never king. He will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices, priest and king. Again, three chapters later in chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10 says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, listen to this, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Back in Jeremiah 2, God brought an accusation against Judah and he said, you have... You have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you've replaced me by carving out cisterns, dry, waterless cisterns for yourselves. And now he says, I'll rescue you. I'll pull you out of those cisterns for myself. On what basis? On the basis of the blood of his covenant. What covenant? What blood? Really good hint is in three chapters later in Zechariah chapter 12. 
I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is where we get a little glimpse of the how. Now we're going to start to see it fleshed out. Actually backing up in terms of the revelation to a thousand years before Jesus came, Psalm 22, written by David, the psalm begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Heard those words before? Jesus spoke those words as he was dying on the cross. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head and they say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Those words sound almost exactly like the words of mockery in the Gospels on the day that Jesus was crucified. Let God deliver Him. In fact, let Him deliver Himself. Let Him come down from the cross if He is who He says He is. This is a passage about public humiliation, but much worse than that. I'm not even going to read all of this, but I'm going to read verse 16. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. And then he says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots, which of course happened on the day that Jesus was crucified. The dislocation of joints, the skin pulled tightly, showing the, the outline of the bones, the piercing of the hands and feet. Does this sound like a, a mode of execution that you've heard of before? Now, you know when that mode of execution first came into use by any nation? About 800 years after that psalm was written. The Christ would be crucified. That's how His blood, that's how the blood of the covenant would be shed. The Christ would be crucified. And then he would be raised from the dead. Another Davidic psalm, Psalm 16, David is speaking for Messiah. I'm going to go to verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. My flesh. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In Acts chapter 13, Paul said that's talking about Jesus. He said David was talking about Jesus. And you know how he knew that? Because David was still in his tomb. Okay? He said, David, verse 36, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He was laid among his fathers. He underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. And then look at verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through Him, forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The one who died and was raised from the dead, He's the one who, who took care of your sins. In Acts chapter 2, I know I'm out of sequence, but in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter said the same thing that Paul says there in that passage we just saw. Peter says, when David wrote that psalm, he knew he wasn't talking about himself. He knew that he was acting in the role of a prophet. It says, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus 
whom you crucified. Let's talk about the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection. That purpose was to pay our sin debt to God. I'm going to walk through this. We're getting short of time, but I'm going to walk through this passage. And then we're going to talk a little bit about this passage because this passage is, this passage is off the charts. What's in this passage? Okay, behold, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. So remember my servant, the branch, this, this promised Christ, he will be, he'll be exalted. He'll be a big thing. He'll be famous, right? But verse 14 then backs up and it says, first he's going to be humiliated. Many were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And then chapter 53, verse 1, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This one who's supposed to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, is the, it, it, he's experiencing the exact opposite. He is brought very low. He is humbled. He is despised. People don't even want to look at him. And that happened on the day that he was crucified. And then, in verses 4-6, through six, you have the single clearest declaration of substitutionary atonement in the entire Bible. And it's not in the New Testament. It was written almost 700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled it. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our peace, for our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Him for us. Him for us. Him for us. Him for us. And then it says He was oppressed and He was afflicted, but He did not open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so He did not open His mouth. Jesus did not protest when He was led to the cross. Why? Because He came to die. He came to go to the cross. That's what He says in John 12. For this purpose, I came to this hour. He could have called, what was it, 12 legions? Is that what it was? Evangels? It's like 72,000 angels. I can't remember. It's a whole bunch. He didn't do that. Okay, then here, this same passage, verse 9. His grave was assigned to be with wicked men, but with a rich man in his death. Whose grave was Jesus buried in? Joseph of Arimathea, a rich ruler of the Jews. He was supposed to be buried in the paupers, you know, the criminals. Criminals burial ground, but he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. It says, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And then it says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, let me ask you, if you've been executed and buried, how do your days get prolonged? 
You have to be raised from the dead. You have the prophecy of Christ's resurrection, and then you have this marvelous promise of, his, of the exaltation that he deserves. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. That's called propitiation. The satisfaction of the Father because of the Son's sacrifice. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the spoils of victory with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and, was, and interceded for the transgressors. Okay, so in that, in that one passage, you have God's servant will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted. He suffered terrible humiliation and rejection. He's punished in our place. By the, this is all presented in prophetic perfect, meaning as if it already happened, but before it happened. He was punished in our place to pay our sin debt to God, Him for us. He went to His death without protest or self-vindication because He came to die for us in our place. He was supposed to be buried with criminals, but He was buried with a rich man. Because He offered up Himself in our place, God prolonged His days and He had many offspring, which means He was re resurrected. God's wrath against our sin was satisfied through His guilt offering of, of Himself. Because He poured out Himself to death and interceded for sinners, God will allot Him a portion with the great and He will divide the victories, of, uh, the spoils of victory with the strong and He will rule forever. What part of the New Testament Gospel is missing? None of it. This is the same Gospel message. Now, I want to share something else. This is a, this is a, a two days of the annual cycle of readings in all the synagogues all over the world. And there's always a the portion of the Torah. By the end of the year, you've finished the Torah. And with each Torah reading, there's a reading from the prophets called the Haftarah. On the 48th and 49th day in the ASKR, those are just different sets, sects of, of Judaism, Ashkenazic, uh, Sephardic, etc. Okay. When you go from the 48th day to the 49th day, what's missing? Isaiah, Isaiah 52.13 to 53.12, the passage we just read. That started very likely soon after Jesus Christ came and died and was resurrected. There's, there are sources that say before that, when this all started probably in the Masoretic period between the two Testaments, and back then, that passage was included. Why did they exclude it? Well, in this day and age, the Jews say that that passage is unsearchable. It's too weird. It's, it, it confuses the rabbis. And so they just omit it. Now, in fairness, there are other passages, there are other chapters from Isaiah that are not in there, but, but this one actually surgically removes this specific set of verses. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. The reason I majored in Old Testament when I, when I went to uh, Dallas Seminary is because when I went to Texas A&M, in my first year as a freshman, I was a baby Christian. I'd been a Christian for about a year and a half. And I was out in the prettiest part of the campus in front of the academic building, and I saw this elderly gentleman handing out little Bibles with, with New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. Everybody knows who he was with, right? Gideon's. Okay. 
I walked up to him, I got in a conversation with him. His name was Aaron Shapery. I've told you this story before, so bear with me if you've ever heard it, but he, he gave me his testimony. He said, I was raised an Orthodox Jew, and when I was about the age you are now, him speaking to me, a friend of mine came up to me and he handed me a copy of the Tanakh, the, Old, the Hebrew Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament, and he said, read this passage. And Aaron said, you know, I'd never seen that passage because it was never read. In fact, we were told not to pay any attention to it. So he said, I read that passage, and then my friend said to me, is there a historical figure that this looks like it's talking about? And Aaron said, yeah, Yeshua, Jesus, my Messiah, my Savior. That day, Aaron Shapery's life was changed forever. He spent the rest of his life proclaiming Jesus as the long-promised Christ. Do you think it matters that God's been talking about this since long before it happened? I can tell you it matters to Jews, and it matters to us, and it matters to everybody. I was in a conversation three days ago with a young man, and he said, he, we looked at Isaiah 53, he said, that's really impressive, but what if it was all written after Jesus? You know about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. When, when the, the scrolls preserved by the Essenes in the Qumran caves were discovered in 1946, the scholars studied them, they applied all kinds of dating methods to them, and they determined that the scrolls that were found in there of Isaiah were at least 150 years before Christ, maybe more like 350 years. They were copies of the originals, but they were very old, and they all predated Christ by a lot. And you know, you know what one book of all the books that were found with manuscript copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know which book has all 66 chapters in the scrolls? Isaiah. All the chapters. And you know what some of the best preserved chapters are? Isaiah 52 and 53. There are three words difference between the pre-Christ manuscript of Isaiah 52 and 53 compared with the with manuscripts a thousand years later that were, that were written a thousand years, transcribed, copied a thousand years later. And they don't change anything. You think that's important? I told that to this guy and he said, oh, okay. Beloved, what I pray you will walk away with this morning is this. It is critically important that God has been talking about the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ ever since God started talking to human beings. Okay? It's critically important and it needs to be in our gospel message. It needs to be there. We live in a world where nobody knows what truth is and where the Bible is treated as if it's this, this contrivance, this fantasy that men came up with. Guys, the Bible is its own best and most compelling attestation. It cannot be the contrivance of men. It is miraculous in every facet of it. It is unlike anything else that you will ever hold in your hands and we get to carry it around on our phones. 
The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to discern the innermost thoughts of the heart. And it lays us bare before God. It exposes us. So let's take the Word of the cross, the Word of Jesus, which this whole book is about, and let's, let's talk to people about it. Let's open it up and show them. And let's pray for their souls that God will use it, that He will shine the light of His Word on their, on their hearts and He will save them. Dear Father, make us faithful to proclaim this beautiful word, this gift that you have given us, that many might be saved. And make us, Father, drive us daily to come and behold you in it, to behold Christ. You made us for yourself. You've spoken, and we get to know you now and forever. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.